Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Sometimes we as parents share things out of a need to essentially emotionally impact our child. We think, oh, if I tell a story about a time that I drank so much alcohol in high school that I passed out, then my kid won't make the same mistake. And nothing could be further from the truth. What they think is, well, I'm not you. They're at a phase developmentally of individuation. They are pulling away and figuring out who they are apart from you. So it has the opposite effect when we overshare to get an emotional response. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Today's guest is a speaker, author, and educator who helps kids, parents, and teachers navigate the complicated social world of early adolescence. Her latest book, 14 Talks by the Age of 14, guides readers through essential conversations parents should have with their kids before they start high school. Her first book, Middle School Makeover, Improving the Way You and Your Child Experience the Middle School Years, is a primer for the social and emotional changes parents and kids navigate when midlife meets middle school under one roof. She recalls herself in seventh grade, describing what she suffered from as the typical middle school misfit, complete with oversized glasses, a lopsided coiffure and all the wrong clothes. She says she was an insecure kid whose family had moved around a little bit and who wasn't really confident in making new friends. Often teased by the other children for her awkwardness, she found middle school, unsurprisingly, to be disconnected. She found it lonely and a little confusing. I'm sure she's not alone in any of that. Reflecting on her experiences, she says that all I wanted to do was be invisible because I felt like I kept making mistakes in public. Fast forward to present day, and lucky for all of us, she has gone from middle school misfit to appearing on NBC's Today Show, and now focuses on this period of intense growth for children in the physical and chemical developments of their brains, the complexity of their relationships with peers, and their academic family responsibilities. She has forged a career and devoted it to teaching these children and their parents how to navigate sometimes treacherous waters. She is a member of the Today Show parenting team and NBC News Learn. Her work has been featured in the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, CNN, Time and People magazine. Her middle school leadership programs, Athena's Path and Hero's Pursuit, have been implemented at schools across the US and she speaks around the globe at schools and at parenting events. Her work and messages could not be more relevant for the work we do at Elevate. So it brings me much joy to be welcoming the lovely Michelle Icard to the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Yes, it's lovely to meet you too. Thank you for having me. 
Absolute pleasure. I would love to learn so much more about you. I think the work that you're doing mirrors a lot of the messaging that I'm trying to instill in the girls that I work with. But it would be great to find out actually what your journey, your personal journey was like and how you ended up in the field of working with tweens in the first place. Truly, it it does all begin with my own middle school experience. And I, I won't dive too deeply into that, but I will say that I, like many people, so f- for me, middle school at the time was seventh and eighth grade in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, now, typically, it would be sixth, seventh, eighth. Some schools here would be fifth grade. So we're looking at around the ages of 10 to 14. Um, And for me, that time was lonely. Uh, I felt isolated. I had moved to a new city. My mother had remarried. So everything was new to me at a time of life when everything is already becoming new because you're doing what I call um, the middle school construction project. So you're developing a new body, a new brain, a new identity. And then I had all these other new things going on. So I disliked middle school, Um, didn't give it much thought until I was a young parent. I was working for a global consulting firm that ended up crashing. And so I lost my job. I was uh, seven months pregnant and had a little girl who was not even two. And I thought, gosh, I've got to completely reinvent myself right now. I, I didn't think anyone would hire me walking in the door seven months pregnant. Um, So I started, I have a background in education and I started a little tutoring business that I thought would sort of, I would cobble things together while my kids were young. And I ended up working mostly with kids in middle school and it took me right back to my own middle school experience, which I remembered so vividly. And um, that's how I just was drawn to this type of work. Amazing. Amazing. It's amazing how certain experiences or what we can might call some tweens might see as or teens might see as failure, you know, losing your job as being some kind of thing, but how it can trigger and reinvent yourself in other ways and how these experiences can be part of our growth, which is exactly what you've done. And I feel like you found your calling. Would you say that's true? Uh, absolutely. And you're right. It's not, you can't, you can't see in the moment that, the, oh, this is what an opportunity. <laughs> it just, it does just feel like a dead end or a failure or a loss. Um, but those are that reinventing is such an important thing for people to do. It's a really big part of being an adolescent anyway. Um, but it's nice when we get the chance as adults to do that too. Yeah. And I think what you said is really important. It allows us when as adults, we have to do that to take ourselves back to the place of where we were like when we were young teens ourselves. And perhaps we can show a bit more empathy to the children that we are. um, We are around sometimes your recent book, which has been a true gift. I loved reading everything about it. It's a real Bible almost for many parents who are faced with tween and power struggles, shutdowns or any kind of issue you face as a parent or a teacher maybe it's a step-by-step guide really on how to have meaningful conversations with children at this age of development you've outlined the whole book by this lovely simple memorable and family tested formula which brings every essential talk you have it devised under a model which you've called brief and I even like the fact that it tells you in the acronym how it should go would you kindly take us through this acronym and and maybe explain what each letter represents I'd love to. Uh, yes, so you're right. So BRIEF is an acronym, and I'm, I'm glad that you uh, immediately identified that I do want these conversations to be brief. I think so often as parents, we think, oh, no, this is a big talk. I've 
we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. I've got to get it right. I don't want to say anything that's going to, you know, put something on my kid's radar or steer them in the wrong direction. And that pressure will either cause us to drone on and on. So <laughs> thinking we have to get it all in there and then our kids tune out or to not talk at all. So, um, so it's important to keep in mind that, that these talks and all talks are better when they are shorter, we get in and we get out and they don't have to be perfect. The brief acronym stands for be, begin peacefully. And, and that could be as simple as taking a deep breath before you start. It could be scheduling a time to talk. Kids really don't like it when we um, catch them off guard. So if you need to talk about an important issue, let's say grades, that's always a hot topic for kids in early adolescence. You might say, hey, we haven't touched base on grades in a while. Would you like to talk before dinner or at bedtime? You tell me. So you're giving them a little bit of power early on. It's, it's a peaceful way to begin. Uh, the R is relate, and that's your opportunity to show your kid that you are not having this conversation to bust them. You're not suspicious. You're really, these conversations are about building rapport. So here you could just say something that says, hey, you know, I'm on your team. I'm here to help, something like that. I is interview for data, and this is where you can ask some questions. And the purpose here is to really gain clarity on what your child knows and understands about the situation. It's not an opportunity to get deeply personal. I know a lot of parents want to know every little thing about their kid's life, and so they want to ask questions that are really private. Uh, this isn't the moment for that. This is more of a let's understand the scope of the situation we're dealing with. E is echo what you hear, and this is, you know, if you've been to a therapist or seen one on TV, you know how this sounds. Like, oh, it sounds like you're feeling this way, or I'm hearing say that X, Y, or Z. Um, F is feedback. So this is like the drum roll moment that parents are waiting for. They always want to be able to give advice or suggestions or set limits, whatever it may be. The difficult thing is that most parents will start at F. They will begin with feedback and kids this age are so prone to tune that out unless you kind of um, built this rapport, as I've said. Mm, amazing. I think that's such a helpful guide. And I've honestly been you thinking about it a lot since I read your book and it's 14 talks by the age of 14 so there are brilliantly outlined chapters in here the book is actually structured in two halves the first which prepares the parent on what the do's and the don'ts are which is so helpful and then the second half that dives deeper into each of the 14 conversations which you've deemed necessary to have before your child is the age of 14. That is not to say if you've got a child that is over 14 you should not read this book. <laughs> I still think it is helpful but it, it really gets to those early adolescent stages and I think it's a really helpful tool. Uh, within the first half there's a section in which you point out some common areas and phrases that parents often use in their defense to be helpful, but often end up having adverse effects because as you so rightfully mentioned, they're, they're quite passive aggressive. So phrases such as lighten up, don't overreact, whatever you want, okay, fine. And I think that exactly as you say, so many parents, myself included, default to these phrases instinctively, whether they've had a long exhausting day themselves or, or not even aware of the fact that it comes across in the way it has. Can you explain why these types of statements tend to be more harmful than good? Sure, and I, I love that you admitted to using these yourself and I always say that I've put these in here because I know them personally. 
So we all do this. There, this is not an indictment of anyone. It's a common way to respond, particularly as you noted, when you're tired. These come out of my mouth when I feel underappreciated or when I've been pulled in too many directions. Um, they are not helpful in the sense that, again, the purpose of these conversations, if I could just get global for a moment in the scope of the book, is I I don't want kids to, as they get into high school and get further along in their lives, to find themselves in a moment of despair or confusion or anger or helplessness or hopelessness, whatever it may be, and feel like, but I can't go to my parent and talk about this. That to me is a dangerous place for a kid to find themselves. And so these conversations are about building a bridge and practicing over time so that your child knows, oh, I know my parent is a safe place to land. I can come to them and I can tell them something awkward or embarrassing or upsetting, or I made a mistake. And we're gonna have a rational, reasonable discussion about it. So when you resort to these kind of passive aggressive, like, okay, fine, whatever, whatever. I don't have to cook dinner anymore. If you don't like what I'm making, then you can just have cereal. I don't care. It's, it's a way of your venting, but it shuts down communication. There's nothing your child can say to that that builds a bridge back. And, in, and what I think is so funny is when I do this sort of thing, my hope is that it will be a trigger moment for my family to say, oh, you're right. Gosh, we, we were being so rude. We didn't realize it. And that never happens. No one has an epiphany moment. They just get angry that you've gotten angry and it spirals out of control. So avoid as, I mean, you can take that passive aggressiveness to your partner and talk about it. Boy, I was really mad earlier when the kids did this, but it's not something to bring up in a family moment. If you can help it, it's going to happen from time to time, but you want to try to avoid. Yeah, I think that's such a good reminder and such a helpful way to to think about the fact you're not a faulted mom if you have made those mistakes or a parent or dad or any kind of carer but yeah finding your outlet because it's necessary I don't think that we should bottle them up either I think if you are feeling frustrated it's important to to air those things out but yeah finding the right place and the right moment is so well and even to say it to your kids I think what I learned is you know Michelle don't be passive aggressive tell them oh I'm disappointed because I worked really hard on this meal and I thought you would be more excited about it. I feel really bummed right now. If you can say it in a way that is not passive aggressive, but really expresses how you feel, your kids can actually respond to that, but they don't know how to respond to a snarky comment. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were, the outcome is just dreadful, isn't it? You're like you said, it goes into a terrible spiral. That's not helpful for anybody. The other thing that you said, you gave a really helpful warning about was parents who overshare, which can sometimes lead to a little bit of a dangerous, slippery slope. I would love you to explain the tackle versus telling analogy that we're all familiar with from our own preschool days, but you bring it back to adulthood. And I'd love for you to share that a little bit. Sure. So, you know, yeah, the idea that that this sparked for me is that memory of preschool teachers who say, um, now, are you tattling to get this child, child in trouble or are you telling me to keep them safe? And we can almost take that and shift it to our parenting when we're thinking about why I'm sharing something. Sometimes we as parents share things out of a need to be emotional, to be impressive, to um to, to essentially emotionally impact our child. We think, oh, if I tell a story about a time that I drank so much alcohol in high school, you know, that I passed out, then my kid won't make the same mistake. 
and and nothing could be further from the truth. Your child doesn't listen to you say, I made this mis- uh, this mistake and think to themselves, gosh, well, I better not do the same thing. What they think is, well, I'm not you. They're in a, they're in a phase developmentally of individuation. They are pulling away and figuring out who they are apart from you. So it has the opposite effect when we overshare to get an emotional response. Maybe the example I gave you, or maybe it's you want to condemn someone else. So you're sharing something about your partner or a parent of a friend of theirs to say, look at what a bad example they are, you know, that, that looking for an emotional response from your child when you share information usually isn't the way to go. Instead, if you're sharing information to educate them, um, if you're sharing facts, if you're sharing data, if you're sharing research, if you're sharing, um, you know, anything that helps them make a more informed decision rationally that is not relying on what someone else did. That's helpful. And I think that's an important distinction that we often forget to make. It's a little bit of a hypocritical thing we do as parents. We say, you should make a decision that is best for you, regardless of what people around you are doing. And then we give them lots of examples of what people around them are doing, you know, in order to make their decision. And that's probably not the safest route for a child. Right. And then you get into the old comparatitis, you know, issue as well, which isn't helpful. Yeah. Excellent point. Again, the ups and downs of juggling a teen's desperate need to be grown up and totally independent one day and then a toddler like behavior with a tantrum the next is also a really common experience during this pre-adolescent stage. And you point out in your book that there are many parts of growing up. This part is also non-linear. You mentioned that there will be many potholes on the road of independence, and it's not a parent's job to help your tween avoid them, but to teach them how to fix the busted tire if they get a flat, which is a great analogy. Again, it's so aligned with the work that I do with the Elevate Mentoring Program as well, because we work a lot of that idea of the road is up and down. And if the child is, we don't want to prevent our children from falling, but we want to teach them how to get up. So it really fits within my resilience module. But I would love to learn a little bit more from you on the two types of independence that you reinforce in the book. But you say you've also witnessed with the children leaving primary or elementary school before they get to middle school. Yeah. So I love that you're you're also sort of focused on this concept because I think it's a very natural instinct for parents and adults and, and caregivers to think, I need to keep my child safe. And in order to do that, I need to keep them from feeling bad feelings or from getting hurt or from feeling guilt. And, and unless we give kids the opportunity to feel all of those things in early adolescence, it's almost like touching a hot stove. They don't know then that that's what they want to avoid later on. They don't know how to cope. They don't know how to pick themselves back up. They don't develop an internal barometer for what feels bad. Um, I often say that shame is really bad. We don't want kids to feel shame, but guilt is good because guilt teaches you, "Uh uh-oh, I did something that makes me feel bad. I don't want to do that again. I don't like feeling guilty. That makes me feel bad. So I'll stop doing that. I'll stop teasing that person because I felt really bad about it afterwards, you know? So that's okay. We just never want it to venture over into the side of shame. Um, In terms of sort of allowing your child to have enough independence that they get the full scope of these feelings of being human, um, there are two ways that kids in early adolescence will begin to assert their need to be independent. One is through exploration. So that's going out into the world by themselves. That could be 
riding their bike up to the corner store to get a candy bar. That's such a freeing, liberating feeling for a kid or going with a group of kids to the shopping center or the movies or whatever. The other is the opposite. It's isolation. It's cocooning. And of course, during the pandemic, it was much harder for kids to experience um, exploration of the world. Although I did see quite a bit of it in creative ways. And it, it was a really sort of a hearkening back to, um, it felt old fashioned, kids going out into the woods you know, <laughs> and sort of poking around and uh, making maps of the area and digging for treasure. And it's, it was sweet, um, but, it, but it was limited. The cocooning, of course, peaked. So what cocooning looks like is a kid goes into their room and shuts the door and they just don't want any part of family time anymore. I mean, I did it. I don't know if you remember doing it, but it was really valuable to me to just be in my room for all day. <laughs> and um, parents see it as a lack of ingenuity, a lack of creativity, um, a selfishness, a laziness, when truly, it is an exploration inward. They're thinking their own thoughts. Um, oftentimes they're, a, they're sort of playing with how they look, you know. Um, they may be working on a new hairstyle or figuring out makeup or uh, listening to music that they've never listened to before. But it is a deep exploration and it's really important to identity development. Yeah, I love this phrase, a cocooning adolescent, and how this stage of their life is such an important introspective time as well. Having said that, I think the difference, and I'm going to get onto the big hot topic of social media in a minute, but I think the difference between you, our generation, which I'm going to put you in my generation, but you're probably younger than me, um, but we didn't have devices in our bedrooms or we didn't have ways of connecting to the outside world. So I think the level of worry with parents these days with cocooning adolescents is slightly the opposite is how much time I'm almost be grateful if my daughter was playing with makeup, but if she's playing with strange Snapchat conversations, I'm not privy to, then that worries me a bit more perhaps is a, maybe a bit of a generalization, but I'm guessing that that's an added new worry that parents probably didn't have in, when we were cocooning. No, I think you're right. I think that there's a great fear of the unknown. I tend to be an optimist on these things. I tend to feel like certainly kids need some boundaries and some limits and, and the way that I think about tech and, and tech when it is private for kids um, is that, you know, you monitor, you, you mentor really more than monitoring. Um, you have lots of good conversations and then you wean off of that because it's like any tool. It's like you wouldn't give your kid a knife for the very first time and say, go cut this apple, right? You'd help them and you'd figure it out and you don't say, cook something on the stove, you know? Um, any tool that is useful to us is also dangerous to us. And I think social media and technology fall under that same category. Um, so we can do a deep dive if you're, whenever you're ready. But I do agree. It's an added worry, but I would say it's not, um, it's not doomsday. Okay, well, that's refreshing. I'm gonna get back to you on that question for sure. Going back to the old independent exploration phase, there's this great list you've got in your book, which include ways that parents can almost attest whether or not their 
child is ready for being as independent as they think they are. And I think I wish I'd had that. My kids are a little bit older now, so I wish I'd done these little tests beforehand. But they're incredible examples, things like ordering food by themselves or replying to texts within a certain time frame of acceptability with the parent is a good one. Asking unfamiliar adults questions for help servers, librarians, things like that, which again, I think are really great ways of getting a little bit of independence from a child, but also seeing how ready they genuinely feel or whether they're just screaming it down from their bedrooms because their friends are doing this. What do you think, in your opinion, you would say to a parent whose child is so fiercely independent, like they really know their mind already, they have a very strong, and this list would have, you know, they've ticked it off maybe age eight, almost maybe too early. Are there dangers of letting kids go too soon? Probably. <laughs> I think that's a great question. Um, eight feels awfully young. Now, I will say, um, I mean, I'm a fan of, I don't know if you're familiar with Lenore Skenazy, who wrote Free Range Kids. So I, I tend to believe in that philosophy. And what I would say is, I think even an eight-year-old can can do some things incrementally. Now, you, they may not be ready to go to the mall all day, but they probably could ride their bike up to the store and get a candy bar, uh, depending on where the store is and depending on the traffic, that sort of thing. It's the kind of thing that freaks people out because, um, well, because of the news and because of what does sometimes happen, but I think statistically we have to take a step back and a deep breath and and realize what what is the real safety versus my heightened fear here. Um, because we do lots of things. We allow our kids to do lots of things that are incredibly dangerous all the time. And we suspend our disbelief. Riding in cars, that's extremely dangerous, but we put our kids in the car all the time. Um, going to summer camp, playing sports, you know, there are lots of things that we let them do and we say, probably nothing really bad is gonna happen to them. Um, when they are alone, we feel worse about it than if we were with them when something happened. Um, but I do think, yeah, I do, I do think even a, even a young person who checks off the list, and the list, by the way, is devised to show a level of maturity. And some younger kids, it's not just independence, but it's their capability and their resilience. Should something go wrong, do they have the maturity and ability to handle it? So um, I think I would let an eight-year-old start to dip their toe in the water there if they were ready. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think reframing your worries and expectations of situations is also really helpful and a good way for us to rethink these things because it's it is often our own level of thoughts and and our own brain giving us these signals that this is dangerous when actually if, if you look at your child and and you parent each child for who they are i think the other question i was going to bring up is if you've got more than one child and you had a rule that this was the age at which this child did you know, activity X, therefore your brother or your sister will also do it at age because it's seen as unfair otherwise. Uh, and I think that whole idea of parenting each child for their own level of independence and maturity is probably an important one too, because lots of siblings will find it unfair if, they're, if their older brother, younger brother or someone is doing something when they weren't able to at that age. Oh, I know this one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a good point. If you have a checklist instead of an age, then it's something that your child can strive for. And I mean, there I write in the book that there are plenty of times when no is the best answer. Um, the book isn't about being completely permissive, but if no is the answer, I think it's helpful to say, how do I get to yes? Then what do I need to do to be ready for this? 
Navigating friendships is also really tricky at this time. Your book is full of great metaphors and similes like the one I'm just about to share, which is reminding yourself about being in an amusement park, especially when your children are a bit younger and you are the bag lady holding all the coats and snacks and drinks and waiting patiently for as your children ride this roller coaster in the amusement park. It's such a great visual because uh, you are actively encouraging parents not to get on the ride with our children. You're actually saying to them, let's not get on this roller coaster and experience the emotional ups and downs of their friendship issues at this age. And our job is much more to be a comfort when they're nervous. You explain very helpfully that it's when they're unhappy and for there to provide them drinks and snacks and give them some chauffeuring services, then that's kind of the role that we should be playing. I think it's brilliant. And what a lovely way to remind us all. In your experience though, how hard is it for parents to balance it, this role that you've mentioned? And I imagine it can be quite challenging for parents to let go of their little baby that's growing up. Yes, yes. It's incredibly hard. And, you know, I can remember it being hard for me. Some parents will say it's harder to go through middle school as a parent than it was as a child because you love your child so much. And to see them suffer or feel left out or be rejected by a friend who they really care for is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for the kid. It's really heartbreaking for the parent. And, and we have been sort of conditioned through their early ages of childhood to, to put band-aids on and to make them feel better. That's our instinct. And you can't do that for a kid who's going through a heartbreak in middle school because their best friends have decided they don't want her to be part of the group anymore. It's so common. Um, the best thing that you can do is sort of be there, have empathy for them, try to create other situations that will distract your child or introduce your child to someone else. Love them, but you cannot fix it. You certainly can't socially orchestrate a situation in which your child is more accepted or you teach the other girls a lesson or call the other parent and say, can't you make your child be nicer to my child? None of that works. So it's painful because there is no immediate fix other than time. What I think it's helpful for kids to know is that this is normal. I talk a lot about normalizing in the book. Only 1% of friendships in seventh grade last into high school. So it, it feels to a child, gosh, am I not normal? Am I not likable? What's wrong with me? When in fact, it's a completely normal thing to have a friendship breakup in middle school. So I think we need to be talking about that with kids. Yeah, I love that friendship breakup. And in fact, it's almost a healthy thing because people outgrow each other. And sometimes they hold on to friendships because they have to, because they were labeled best friends when they were little. And so a lot of times, particularly girls, find it a level of guilt of breaking up with their friend. So it is, you're right, it's full of all sorts of emotions, isn't it? And I think that you touched on it earlier. It's, it sort of lends itself to this thing that you've called the middle school construction project, which is also a great way of thinking about what's going on in a child's development at this point. Would you like to talk a little bit more and explain what the, what the elements of the constructions are? Sure. So beginning at about age 11, your child is going through the process of becoming an adult. And, uh, and I mean, it's a, at least a 10-year process, more. Um, so parents freak out. To 11, they're not nearly old enough to become an adult, but they have to start, right? It takes so long and so much practice that, um, that that's when it happens biologically, neurologically, developmentally. Um, they enter what I call the middle school construction project, where they have to develop the three things they need to become an adult. 
So I travel all around and I give talks to parent groups and, and I often throw this one out to the audience and I say, what are the three things your child needs to become an adult? And parents in the audience will say things like they need to be, they need to have responsibility. They need to be critical thinkers. They need to be um, mature, right? So they'll say these things and I'll say, do you know an adult who's irresponsible? <laughs> They're like, oh, we do. <laughs> or who's infer? Yeah, we do. So um, what we're talking about here in this construction project is far more foundational. Your kid will get to the point that they are hopefully responsible and mature and critical thinkers and all those things that make for a good adult. But the, the, they are really working in middle school on a more basic construction project. They are developing an adult body. They are developing an adult brain and an adult identity all at once. My favorite of those three to think about and to study and to observe is this development of an adult identity. And what that means is simply figuring out who you are apart from your parents. So up until about age 11, kids see themselves as an appendage of their family. And then at around that age, they start to think, you know, I want, I want to wear what I want to wear. I want to develop my own brand of what kind of person I'm going to be. And I might not agree with what you believe. And um, it comes across as argumentative and contrarian and rejecting and isolating. But um, I, off I reassure parents that kids who don't go through this phase and get practice doing this, uh, they cannot enter the next phase of their development, which is relationships. And so kids who don't go through the process of individuation and becoming independent find themselves, we all know those adults who are always in toxic relationships, codependent relationships. Um, so painful as it may feel when your child is going through this, it's, it's a little bit of a balm to remember. This, is, this process is what will help them be in a healthy relationship later on. Yeah, that's, so, that's really interesting to me to listen to your perspective on that. Let's go to social media, shall we? Shall we go on to social media? Because that's another place of where a lot of the girls that I work with seem to get their inspiration. I'm going to go on a limb here and think that you and I are a little bit aligned with social media being a force for good and trying to embrace what social media can do for young teens if we let them. And that's the talk that I keep giving parents and uh, the webinars that I've delivered have always been, I know it scares you. But let's think for a second of what we can do. Look at what Greta Thunberg's done with climate change through social media, you know. So, but I'd love to, because you've had so much experience with young people, and, and I think you can speak to this a little bit more. But there's so many personal family circumstances and rules around this subject. So it's very difficult for me to give a generalist opinion. But I agree with that it's important to expose our youth to the power of social media, but also showing them that the negative things exist. I suppose you said it with a knife. Could you kindly explain what you think are ways that you can be creative around social media versus being a passive social media user? I think that's a really helpful way for parents to listen to this conversation. Yeah, I think creativity is a huge part of social media and parents miss it because they think I'm just seeing selfie after selfie after selfie, group shot of my daughter with a group of other girls all looking sexy. There's nothing creative about this. But it is a deeply creative medium. When I talk with um, the kids in my program, what I talk about is balance, just like anything in life. Um, and I try to encourage them to, first of all, follow accounts that are inspirational to them, not just their friends, 
but to, to think about what interests them and appeals to them. And there are so many good and fun accounts that parents can follow with their kids that can be a, a nice bridge to fun conversations. You know, I don't want every conversation you have with your child to be a bummer or a warning or an advisory. I want you to have fun and connect. So look for the accounts that are artistic or creative or funny. You know, my family, we all follow, we rate dogs. I don't know if you follow them, but it's just so cute. They just have cute dogs on and they give them ratings and funny captions. And um, so we follow that and we follow Nat Geo. And there are several that all four of us follow. And my kids are older now. They're, they're both out of the house. They're 18 and 20, but we keep in touch through these conversations on social media. So it's a real connector for us. Um, but for a younger child who's in middle school, what I did with my kids to sort of let them dip their toe in the water is I said, your first social media account can be a hobby account. So think of something you're really interested in. You can have that account without your name on it. You create a, you know, a fake name for the account that doesn't give any identifying information and you don't post any photos of yourself. I want you to learn the tool. I want you to learn how to use Instagram without putting yourself at risk first. So, and she made a little combo account for both of those. Um, and so Hunger Games, Harry Potter, and she just posted pictures from the movies and quotes from the book. And a celebrity from one of the movies commented on her account. Nothing boosts a kid's self-esteem more, right? So for her, that was like, wow, what a creative use of social media. Um, for my son, he was into sports and so he did a sports account and he was downloading photos and using graphic design where to change them and make them cool and give them his own spin. Um, so that was how we started. And once I saw that they could use it and that they were being responsible, then I said, okay, you can put your first name on it and you can put pictures of yourself, no last name yet. We started young, they were like 11 when they started with social media. And then I remember the day midway through middle school, I said, okay, you can put your first and your last name on your account. And they were like screaming, running through the house. <laughs> they were so happy. It's like any tool. You start off soft and gentle and watching and helping, and then you back up and back up and they earn more and more responsibility. Yeah. And that gives them such a nice incentive as well, doesn't it? To, and they must get a sense of pride in the fact that they've created something and people know them for other things other than just their great pout maybe I don't know (laughs) (laughs) Um, the other issue that I seem to come across a lot um, is body image and I think social media might play into that a little bit as well which is why I wanted to touch on it with you I think that adolescence is a time where one girl might develop completely different to another girl and they, they could have been exactly the same up to a certain point and then all of a sudden there's varying heights and images of and shapes and sizes of all of us and but there is a lot of worry I think about some of the preconceived notions around body image in, in young teen girls I wonder if there are ways for parents to help with tween girls or girls in your in your view of how they might embrace positive body image in your opinion yeah this is so important to me um so I think like most things, the most important thing we can do is be talking about it. Um, And unfortunately, the trend that I see now is parents talking about health and wellness when what they really mean is attractiveness, right? 
So they will say like, oh, you've got to exercise to be healthy. You've got to, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is what your kid is hearing is you've got to exercise. You've got to, you know, lose some weight. You've got to get muscle mass. You've got to blah, blah, blah. And I think um, the less you talk about bodies in general, the better, um, except to say that I think there, that um, there are some accounts on social media that are really good at showing people of all sizes um, feeling really happy and being really positive and being out in life, enjoying life in numbers of ways that I think um, we often think are restricted to people who are healthy and well, right? <laughs> So there are some accounts that I think are worth following that show a diversity of living that I think is really important. Um, and also I think it's kind of fun for girls. So at this age, again, I'm sort of thinking the 11 to 14 is my pocket, but at that age, girls really like to be skeptics. Um, and so the accounts that show you, this is how the picture looked and this is how it was filtered and edited. Those are fun for girls because they can become detectives and they can start to look and say, I know that's not a real picture. I can tell just by looking it's been modified. So if you can find accounts that show those differences, that can be really fun for a girl because she gets to be smarter than the average bear. And that's fun. Yeah, very helpful as well. I think it's important probably for us as parents and mothers to be careful around the language we use around the dinner table. and. I know moms that are calorie counting themselves because they perhaps want to shed a few pounds. But I think all of that, you're right, is do you believe indirectly feeding into a young girl's mind? That Oh, absolutely. I was listening to a podcast recently where a woman was saying something as small as in her home growing up, there were two milks. Her dad had the whole milk and her mother had the skim milk. And for her at age eight, she was like, oh, the girls drink the milk without any fat in it because we don't want to get fat and it doesn't matter for boys. Her parents didn't talk about it. They just kept the two milks in the refrigerator and the girl got it. She got the message. So I think we are sending messages all the time without even realizing it. There was something else that made me laugh so much in the book, but it's, it's not because it was funny for readers, mostly because I think I could imagine myself doing the same thing. You use a phrase about when we're communicating with our children that the importance of our own body language. So definitely I do a lot of work on active listening and I talk a lot about when we're talking to our teens, if they're looking down or there are, there are screens and they're giving you one word answers, then that conversation may not go. And then you're getting angrier because they're not looking at you and all of this stuff becomes a problem. But, but in reverse, I think the other thing that parents forget to do is their own body language when they talk to children. And the one I really loved was things that you say, which you refer to as the Botox brow. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be great for listeners if you could shed some more light on this Botox brow and, and any other body language tips that parents can use to engage when, when they're talking to their children. Yeah, this is my greatest hit, Botox. <laughs> I love it. I just think it's like, it was so good. <laughs> the idea behind this is that actually uh, the most important thing when you are talking to your kid, it has nothing to do with what you say and everything to do with how you look when you say it. So um, this comes out of a study that came out of Harvard University's hospital. There's a neurologist there who put adults through an MRI and showed them pictures of people's faces. 
And she said, can you tell me just by looking at these photos what this person is feeling? And adults could get it right 100% of the time. Um, and she could tell because they were hooked up to the MRI that they were using their prefrontal cortex. Well, what happens beginning at age 11 and going all the way through adolescence is that the prefrontal cortex starts rewiring and reshaping and the amygdala, the emotional center of the brain really takes over for teens. It's why they have such heightened emotions and such big reactions and big feelings. So um, she put teens through the MRI, showed them the same photos and said, can you tell me just by looking at this person's face how they feel? Teens got it wrong 50% of the time. And when they got it wrong, they almost always assumed someone was angry, even when they weren't. So for people who are just listening to the podcast, you'll have to imagine my face right now. But when I wrinkle up my forehead and sort of furrow my eyebrows downward, to me, that's an expression of concern or empathy or concentration, right? To a tween or a teen, they read it as anger no matter what. So what often happens with parents is a kid will walk in the room, the parent will be thinking 10 things at once because we're always multitasking and we say, oh, I forgot Susie had her math test today. So they turn and they're like, oh, hey, how did your math test go? But they've got this furrowed, wrinkled brow, concentrate. And the kid says, oh my gosh, I don't even know what I got yet. Why are you so mad? And they storm out of the room. So parents tell me all the time, yes, this is happening at my house. My kid thinks I'm mad when I'm just asking them a question. But I advise, because kids can't read facial expressions, as I tell parents, pretend you are a celebrity on a late night talk show and you have been so overly Botoxed, not a deer in the headlights, wide eyes, like a neutral, just totally plain. And I mean, I've been doing this work for 15 years and giving this advice for most of that time. And parents tell me it's the biggest game changer in their house that they have much better conversations with their kids when they keep their eyebrows and their foreheads totally neutral. <laughs> that is such a wonderful piece of advice. I think you're you're absolutely you hit the nail on the head when you think when you said the idea that we're in deep concentration and yet they're they're reading it so wrong. It reminds me of the work that I did a lot of the time, which is called executive functioning skills for kids at this age. And that exactly that part of their heightened emotions is wired and buzzing away. And their prefrontal cortex is kind of giving them all the signals that we can't. So there is science behind all of this. It's not just a raging hormonal child that is... <laughs> that is <laughs> That's like they're really handicapped in this area and we blame them for it and it's not their fault. And so if we learn to adjust and not have an emotion on our face, now you can still have emotion. You can tell your child if you're feeling disappointed or curious or excited or upset, whatever it may be, what you want to avoid is miscommunication. If you're really not angry and they think you're angry, that's a showstopper. That's what you want to avoid. What was it like for you personally being a mom? And then you say your kids are a little bit older now, so maybe it feels maybe more liberating to be talking to parents because you can say, I've been there, done that. But when your kids were actually in middle school and you were doing the work that you do today, what was it like for you? I'm asking for personal satisfaction here because I find myself at the end of some nights reflecting on my day and thinking, well, I've just spoken to this many parents and given them this advice today, yet with my own teen. I've followed maybe 50% of it. So I've, 
<laughs> I find it sometimes. Okay. If, even I'm not now, even, no, even now as my kids were older, it's funny. The other day we were getting out of the car and I said something really passive aggressive to my kid. And I said, Oh, you know what it was in the book? I say, Don't ever say to your child, I think you're going to regret that if you do such and such. And so he was doing something with his college courses. And I said, I found myself saying, I just think you're going to regret it. And then I went, oh, I'm not supposed to say that to you. And I know it. And I wrote it in my book. And I just said, we both kind of laughed about it. But um, no, there were many, many times. And I, I make it a point to say to the parents I talk to, my kids have made giant mistakes. I've made giant mistakes. I think it's really important that no one thinks that anyone who's entering the parenting territory has figured out some sort of secret formula in which everything is perfectly good and happy and no one, no one feels bad or makes mistakes like that. That is not the point. The point is, as we said in the beginning, how do you recover from those mistakes? Are you resilient? Can you handle it? Um, so I don't want anyone listening to think that you, or me or anybody else who's out there doing this work doesn't make all the same mistakes. <laughs> yeah, it's quite reassuring, isn't it? We certainly don't have answers, but I love the fact that conversations can help us empower each other and hopefully inspire one another. I would love to ask you a couple of more questions about the retreats and programs that maybe you could talk to us about what it is that you do. And if anyone was interested, I don't know if you work with mostly American families, I assume. Do you do global? Global speaking uh, tours. So I've gone out of the country to speak at schools or organizations, and I love to do that. And I'm hoping that things are going to be opening up soon in the fall for some travel, which would be really great. Yeah, um, love to have you in Singapore. Oh, gosh, that would be a dream. Let's figure that out. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And then I've got some online programming. You know, that was one of the silver linings of the pandemic was so many people pivoting to online. So last summer, well, I typically run these leadership camps for kids in middle school and they're week long day camps, um, mostly where I live in North Carolina in the United States, but we pivoted to Zoom and now we do half of our camps online and we have kids who participated from all over the world last summer, which was really exciting. I've got an online class that goes with the book. So a parent reads the book and then if they want, they can do the online class with their child. So it's 30 minutes every month, a new module comes out and it's a way to break the ice on some of these conversations, just to have a fun little 30 minute, you answer some questions together, you prompt some discussions. It's meant to be light. And that's a really good segue into some of these bigger conversations that are part of the book. So there's lots of online stuff happening. Excellent. And um, for anyone listening and feels that they would love to know how to get all this information, I will link everything into the show notes. So you will be able to find all the links to Michelle's work, books, and anything that she's spoken about today. Um, so rest assured, it's all there. Um, I also would love to ask you now a little bit more about what it's like for you. If you could go back today and tell your teen self something from everything that you've learned and all the experiences you've had so far, what would that be? I think I would say you don't need a boyfriend. It was pretty desperate. Uh, for a it's a good one. It's a good one. I always wanted a boyfriend when I was little, and I, I didn't get one for quite a long time. But it was you know, just top of my brain all the time, and I, I would have been nice to spend some of that energy on something more creative. Interesting. And do you think that was because you thought it might make you feel you could fit in better because all the other girls had boyfriends? Yes, absolutely. That. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? And then you realize boys are such a, you know, such a difficult creature to navigate. That's a whole different world, isn't it? At that age, yes. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> okay. And the last two questions. What first one is what would you hope to see change for young girls in the future? Oh, I would love, it's what we spoke about before, but it's really body acceptance. I would really love to see that, um, get more attention. Brilliant. Excellent. Let's hope we can do that with through these conversations. And lastly, I always love to end my interviews on asking my guests who their role models, either when they were younger, who they were, and if they've changed who they are now and why. My role models, it's a general category and I'll, I'll name a few from it, but female comics, I think... <laughs> I just think in that industry, it takes so much bravery. It's such a misogynistic place. And when women are, they come out really strong and really smart and really bold and brave in comedy, it's so inspirational to me. Um, and I think there's a real sisterhood around that too. So any any of the SNL cast, you know. Tina Fey. Um, love Tina Fey. <laughs> love Amy Poehler. You know, I love Maya Rudolph. Like uh, any of those women, they are my role models. Oh, that's such a... I, I'm I'm in, totally taken by that. That's a really and that's one of the reasons I love this question because it's so interesting to hear where people draw inspiration from. And I think you're absolutely right. The wittiness and the intelligence that it takes to become a very funny person uh, sometimes is underrated. But yeah, that, that they bring a lot of joy into my life. Tina Facebook really just so good so Me good yeah <laughs> loved it loved it well Michelle you've been such a delight to have on the podcast it's been so brilliant to be able to chat to you about the fantastic work that you're doing and I hope this will be the beginning of lots of other conversations you and I can have on ways we can work across the globe hopefully to empower our young uh, folks to feel their best selves and, and hopefully go on to be the the adults that we all want them to be I can't thank you enough. I love the work you're doing and I do hope we stay connected and I do hope I see you in Singapore. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that yes. that would be really lovely. Um, once again, for anyone looking for information on Michelle's work, her website has a lot of information as well. And I will link that in the show notes for you. I do encourage all of you to get her book. She's not written one, but two books. I've got both of them and have drawn so much from them myself. So I encourage you all to have a look at those as well. Thanks again for being here, Michelle. Thank you. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.